Well, I want to say uh, welcome this morning to my wife's mom and dad, uh, who are here with us visiting from Southern California. So I'd like to welcome them here. Thank you. Um, good to have them here with us. They usually come to visit in like November when it's raining sideways and you'd never believe that the sun really does shine in this place. It's beautiful, right? Uh, at least for two months out of the year. And it's great the rest of the time too. Come on. We're in the middle of our summer series called The Good Life, and it's based on the writings of the Apostle Peter that we find in the letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament. And living the good life is how followers of Jesus live in, the world that, uh, live in a world that often feels like it's headed the other direction from God. And uh, we've learned that this good life that Peter describes to us is living the resurrection life we find through Jesus the life God always wanted us to live. It's full of hope and joy, peace, love, contentment, purpose, adventure. It's full of meaningful relationships with family and friends. But it's also filled with many of the same struggles, challenges, and temptations that everyone face. But when we experience the good life in Christ, it puts the other hardships we face into perspective. And as tempting as it may be, especially in the culture of the Pacific Northwest, to kind of fly under the radar in this hostile to our faith world, people still notice. I had a friend during my college years, call him Pete, who had this really humorous experience while he was, he was meeting a group of friends at a local bar and grill, and as they're, you know, taking their seats, there was this other man who had been served a few too many drinks at this point, who took offense to someone in Pete's group, and Pete being a very chill, relaxed personality, he stepped in to try and, you know, alleviate the friction. And it didn't work. The guy didn't like Pete, and he took offense to him. He asked Pete to go outside and fight, and, you know, Pete is just like, uh, no, I, I, I don't want to fight you. And this guy's like, why? I know why. And he says, it's because you're a Christian. Only he was a little drunk at that point, and so he slurred the words, and on the way out, it came, it came out as, you're a Christ stain. You, you're a Christ stain. And Pete, you know, tried not to laugh because that wasn't going to help the situation. And later, he tells us about this whole experience, and so we're just dying, right? And we're like, so is that supposed to be an insult, or is that a, a, a compliment? Because Pete actually was a Christian, and so from that point over, over we just, his nickname became Christine. That's pretty much how it worked in college, right? But we all laughed at this irony. You know, is that really the best put down you could come up with? You know, stains are usually unintended and unwanted. If it happens on the carpet, you know, we, we push a piece of furniture over it. We try and hide stains, right? If it's a, if it's a God forbid it's a, a favorite piece of clothing that we have because it's just done, right? You're like, never going to wear that again? Kind of embarrassing. We want to avoid being associated with stains. So what about being a Christian or, or my friend Pete's case, a Christ stain? It sounds kind of derogatory, doesn't it? But when you choose to follow Christ, even half-heartedly, it puts a mark on you. People notice. You're a Christian, or should I say, Christ-stain. 
Another way to look at it is like this, that being a Christian is like getting a tattoo. And I know that Christians don't get tattoos, unless you're my mother-in-law, right? I'm just kidding. Unless it's, unless it's like a cross, right? Or it's a Bible verse or one of those ichthus fish thingies, then it's considered okay. But is it really a tattoo at that point? Maybe it's just a Christ stain, huh? You're all going to go out and get one now, aren't you? Yeah. Now, being a Christian for many people isn't a notice, uh, a noble thing. It's more like being a Christ stain. You're an unwanted member of our society, an ugly blemish on the surface of our culture with your ideas of holiness, of grace, forgiveness, love, and yet at the same time, countless other people are drawn to Jesus, uh, both now and throughout history, both here and throughout our world. People who've devoted their life to following him have no regrets over that decision. I'm a Christian. I'm marked by Jesus. I'm stained with his blood, changed by his love. And so this sermon is about being a Christ stain, just like my friend Pete. Having the stain of God's grace tattooed on your heart. And you know, tattoos hurt. Sometimes following Jesus hurts too. There's a price we pay, a type of suffering we endure, and that's really what this sermon is about. Suffering for being a Christ stain, a Christian. Dear friends, the Apostle Peter writes to the early church in chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, the context for this passage is really important. In the first century, Christianity, starting in Jerusalem, was mostly Jewish. But in the intervening years and decades, it started to expand and spread out. And so there were many Christians coming to faith in Jesus that were not Jewish, nor were they from Jerusalem. They were Caesar-loving, Greek-speaking pagans. And uh, those are the sorts of people, at least in the Mediterranean world, that love to have a good party, a good time. Often the pleasures of life commingled with the worship of other gods. It was a problem. Peter says to these new Christians, he says, you've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and licentious life. You can Google that word if you don't know what it means. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course, your old friends don't understand why. And this is the struggle. For these first century Christians, their friends and family were saying, why don't you go out with us anymore? You used to be so much fun. Now you're not. What's gotten into you? Not only were these early Christians trying to 
live a new way of life instead of honoring their own impulses, honoring God instead. They were people who were used to be, being in the majority. And now because of their decision to follow Jesus, even though they looked, talked, walked just like everyone else, just like they used to, something has changed. Now they felt a little awkward, uncertain, vulnerable. They were part of this minority called Christians. You know, choosing to live a life for God, whether you're in the first century or the 21st century, means that you're part of a new society. You're part of God's kingdom. We have new values, a new vision, a new way of living life. You're part of the exciting new thing God's doing on this earth, part of his people and his kingdom, and you're going to stand out. You'll attract attention, whether you want to or not, just by the fact of who you now belong to, Christ. You no longer belong to yourself. You no longer belong to this empty, dark, dead-end world or to the one who reigns as its prince. You belong to Jesus. You have an unmistakable Christ stain. Don't hide it. Don't cover it up because you don't want to be misunderstood. And following Jesus, you've chosen to take a different path. And those who care to notice will ask why. You know, there's an enormous difference. Phil touched on this a few weeks ago when he talked about suffering. An enormous difference between uh, the first century Christians, the world that they lived in, the one where we find ourselves today, you know, the words of, for, uh, words of Peter that are 2,000 years old and counting still make sense to us because we endure a type, a level of suffering for being a Christian. True, it's not to the same degree as those living in the first century whose lives were really on the line because of this decision. In fact, it's not even the same as fellow Christians right now around the globe who live in places that are extremely hostile to faith in Jesus. But you know, there are some very, very fundamental things that all Christians need to know. The first is this. When you decide to follow Jesus, when you make that break from sin, you know, the evil one isn't going to take that lying down. I'm not one to find the devil under every bush. Okay, you know, every illness or weird thing that happens or adversity that I might face, I, I hardly ever label that as, oh, this is some sort of spiritual resistance or scheme of the devil. However, sometimes I wonder if I do that to my own detriment, right? Like, I, I've become so, like, I don't want to give Satan that much credit, so I'm just going to, you know, that I kind of ignore the very real fact that there is stuff like that still going on. Uh, there was a battle, a battle for you and me between the forces of God and those of Satan, but that ended at the cross, In Hebrews 2, chapter 14, the writer of Hebrews says, Since the children of God have flesh and blood, Jesus also shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. 
The writer of Hebrews is trying to emphasize that Jesus was victorious in death. His resurrection was real. It serves as a sign of things to come for those whose faith rest in him. But there's still a bit of a mopping up operation that's going on. And we ignore that to our detriment. You know, there was a battle between life and death. But we as followers of Christ have to remember Jesus won. It was a battle between the power of God and the power of sin. Life won. Jesus won. And if the battle ended at the cross, we have to also remember that's where God's grace begins. We are not perfect. We are still broken. We're in a process of change and transformation in healing. Peter put it this way, by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. Remember, God's grace is so beautiful. God's grace is so powerful. And as hard as it may be for us to believe, it's also freely given. Given to all who surrender their lives to God. Who stop serving life, or stop serving their own ambitions and start living for God. And as simple as this choice is, that's all that's needed for you to move from death to life. So when you make a break for sin, when you choose life, you know, the devil isn't going to take that lying down. And by that I mean we're all continuing to face certain temptations. And what matters to us, those are never going to go away. It doesn't mean that Satan won. It just is something that we have to deal with. In July, we talked about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, where Peter says this, Abstain from evil desires which war against your soul. The word image for war there is literally that of going out and enlisting or recruiting soldiers for the war effort. And so Peter's saying, don't enlist soldiers to fight against your own soul. You don't have to win this battle. That's already been won. But don't antagonize yourself. Don't give in to temptation. Stand up to those desires. And standing up to our desires, our temptations, starts with a simple prayer. Lord, help me. I feel like I am under attack right now, or I feel like I am being tempted right now. I need you to help me. The Bible's full of suggestions, instructions, commands, advice, call it whatever you want, of what to do in that situation. James, the brother of Jesus, writes, Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. He will flee from you. Ephesians 4 tells us not to give the devil a foothold, especially when we're angry. And it's those moments when we're tempted to say to do something that dishonors God or damages a relationship in our life. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Don't give him a foothold. Peter says in the next chapter, 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. So the first step in standing up to temptation is simply to resist. Submit yourselves to God. Invite him into the situation and be alert. Be alert. 
Sometimes, you know, you find yourself in the midst of something. You're like, what am I doing here? Shopping online, right? You're just clicking along. Even though you may know you have an issue with overspending. Be alert. Be aware. Don't put yourself in compromising situations. Uh, Get behind some of the reasons why you might be tempted to do or not do a certain thing. You know, I, I... it's always difficult when we talk about sin, like, oh, wow, do we, do we go for the really big sins that everybody knows are a sin, or do we kind of talk about the incidental things that we often brush aside? I decide I was going to talk about the incidental things, like gossip. Gossip is a sin, is wrong, because why? Because we're repeating stuff that may or likely may not be true about someone else that we may or may not know. It can be slander when we know it's not true and we're just like throwing mud anyway. That's wrong. That's a person made in God's image. Don't do that. And yet, from time to time, I find myself in conversation and you have that mental trigger like, what am I saying? Like, what am I doing here? I, I have a, a friend that I see very occasionally, and uh, we have a professional connection, I'll just say it that way. And so every now and then, uh, we, we have people in common, we have places in common, experiences in common, and I'll run into this person, and it's always, it's like, it's like hey, how's so-and-so doing? Hey, you know, you're kind of catching up on what's going on. And then the conversation takes that turn, right? Hey, did you hear? Da-da-da-da-da. And I, I, like, fall for it every time. What's wrong with me, right? Well, resisting the devil, fleeing from him, resisting temptation is, like, you know, when you become aware of it, stop. Simple enough, right? Stop. There's a, there's a discipline there that's required. And another thing is, remember, When you are made aware of those mistakes, repentance is just like, you know what, God? I don't want to do that. I'm sorry. I'm going to head in a new direction. And that's it. It's over. Be different. Remember, you're a Christian. Stained with the unmistakable mark of grace upon your life, and whether it's 63 AD or 2023, when you decide to follow Christ, you make a break from sin. And we have to learn how to resist temptation. Second thing, when you decide to live for God, you may suffer simply for being a Christian. Chapter 4, verse 12 begins, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. This is Peter saying, duh, people. Don't be surprised. You're a Christian. This world will see you as a Christ stain in the fabric of society, so don't let your jaw drop or be wide-eyed. Don't be surprised, shocked, or even amused when you suffer for being a Christian. Now, I think many of us can identify with this kind of suffering. And I, I spent a lot of time talking to people this week Um, about their experiences and realized, oh man, it almost feels 
like with this passage and what we're talking about that I'm, you know, trying to navigate a minefield here. You know, th there, are, there are times that I'm surprised in our religiously tolerant world where if, if I make a choice or express an opinion based on my Christian belief, you know, how much vitriol or flack I get for doing that. And then I turn around and I have, you know, my own team, right? The other Christians who I'm, I'm like not fanatical enough or I didn't get in people's face enough about it. What I want to say is that as Christians, we ought not be surprised if we encounter resistance, face some adversity, or feel like the minority when we try to live in a way that aligns with God's kingdom. But in our weird world of social media, right? Like if I post something online, loudly announcing it to the world, and I take a whole bunch of grief and flack for that, I mean, is that what Peter's talking about here? I'm not sure that would be called a fiery ordeal or suffering, as Peter speaks of. You know, this passage is really directed towards Christians who are experiencing intense personal opposition to their faith. Specifically, it was a lot of wives in this context who had met Christ. And in their very husband-controlled world, they were getting a lot of grief. What's wrong with you? We're going to the Feast of Zeus, and we're going to have a good time, and you're not coming with us? Oh, yes, you are. I mean, that's the kind of... It's people, it's, it's indentured servants, slaves in houses that didn't want to live this way, wanted to head a new direction. But there was a lot of leverage, a lot of opposition with people who had real leverage in their life over their faith in Christ. And they were suffering. It's about how our choice to follow Christ affects us as people, about relationships in our lives. Um, a friend of mine that uh, is in Christian ministry, very dynamic Christian leader, she felt called into ministry. She, she felt like God wanted her, like out of obedience, she, she wanted to like start an orphanage. She wanted to serve overseas. She wanted to be a missionary. She was the only Christian in her family. They thought she was crazy. And if being a Christian wasn't bad enough, literally the phrase, you're throwing your life away. And they employed such pressure upon her to change her mind. Uh, while she was in college, they withdrew their support. Hey, we're not going to pay for this. Uh, it, that didn't work, so then they ostracized her from, you know, family events. You're not invited to Thanksgiving. You can't come to Christmas. Uh, you got all these other new Christian friends. Why don't you go with one of them? I mean, it was nasty, ugly. They tried anything, extremely painful to her. She tried so hard to honor them and love them, but it was really tough. That's what Peter's talking about here. Don't be surprised, Peter says, but instead rejoice. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear 
his name. For people living in our day in North America, this is really hard for us to understand. First, to get into the mindset of like, what kind of suffering is Peter talking about here? And then secondly, to rejoice in it. You know, what kind of sick and twisted advice is this, Peter? Well, uh, in a former life, many, many years ago, I played football, I ran track, and my high school coach, uh, he, the same guy coached football and track. So you kind of had to do both, right? If you want to see time on the football field, well, you should go out for track, okay. And his motto, classic, you know, classic football coach, ball coach, was no pain, no gain. My first real experience of suffering were probably his conditioning workouts in high school, okay? Like, until someone threw up, we were, we're not stopping. And then, for a, for a year in college, I was crazy enough to, to decide I, I wanted to run track. And my college coach couldn't have a more different approach. If my high school coach was no pain, no gain, my, my college track coach literally said, if it hurts, stop. If it hurts, stop. Isn't that good life advice? I mean, even when I was like 20, I realized that's a superior philosophy in my life. If it hurts, stop. And we could all make t-shirts, right? Because living in America, we have an avoid suffering at all costs attitude, right? If it hurts, if it's uncomfortable, even remotely, stop. And when we're talking about suffering, um, we'd probably all agree that whatever is causing our suffering, we should try to avoid. That's not wrong. Please don't leave here today believing that Pastor Dan told you all suffering is good. It's not all good. But all suffering is also not the same. You know, there's things that are, are kind of, you know, we might think they're suffering. Hey, I, I didn't get the job. They're disappointments. I didn't make the soccer team. Uh, you know, I, I'm having some discomfort from seeing the dentist this morning. Or I'm really sad because one of my good friends moved away. You know, those are valid emotions. Those, those are disappointments. But are they really true suffering, as the Apostle Peter is talking about here? And then we get into the, the like, weird categories. I don't know that they're weird, but, um, you know, there's suffering that we bring on ourselves through our own poor choices. We kind of deserve those. But then there's suffering that comes from injustice, suffering from oppression, people opposed to us. You know, that's not good. God, that's not how God intended life to work. Uh, Abuse that people experience in relationships, that's not good suffering. Those people need to stop. You need to get away. I want to be 100% clear. Peter is not saying, you should rejoice because so-and-so is abusing you. No, that's not making you a better Christian. But what he is saying is that the suffering that comes because of our decisions to honor God, to follow Christ, 
no matter what. Sometimes those are just unavoidable and completely out of our control. And when that happens, when you find yourself in that place, Peter wants to encourage you. He wants to say, rejoice. Don't suffer because of evil. Instead, suffer as those who are called Christians, Christ stains. There's no shame in this kind of suffering. There's blessing. We glorify God by suffering with Jesus. He can even transcend this kind of suffering that we're experiencing because he's suffered it too. He experienced the same, maybe even worse. We can identify with him. He's with us. The Apostle Paul, an interesting case study here in the topic of suffering. You know, he's experienced all sorts of stuff, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual hardship, trying to live faithfully to God. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5 through 7, he says, For just as we share abundantly in the suffering of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed... It is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. When we decide to live for God, we may suffer for that decision, but there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, there's something right and God will comfort you. So Peter wants his people to know, when you decide to follow Jesus, you're making a break from sin. You're going to experience temptation. Resist. He says, don't be surprised by that choice. You're going to encounter some opposition and maybe some real suffering as a result of that. But if and when that happens, he says in 1 Peter 4, 19, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. He's saying, be resolved. Develop a stubborn streak in the face of suffering. I'm going to obey God no matter what the cost because we're accountable to him first, and he's my only allegiance. You know, uh, one of the things Corey and I Uh, really tried to drill into our kids when they were little. Now they're almost grown up and we've lost all hope, right? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It's not true. We still talk about this. And in fact, I know that I've told Mark this story. I'm fuzzy on whether whether I've told it to Bren. But, you know, we wanted them to know, like, hey, do the right thing no matter what. And it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. It matters what. God thinks. We wanted them to, like, have that in mind. And so um, around the middle school years, I told, like I said, Mark, I know I told you this story. Brent, I'm fuzzy. I'm sorry. Forgive me if I never did. But I told him the story of me in middle school. I went through this season of where I, you know, just out of pure laziness, I wouldn't do my homework. I wouldn't, you know, really apply myself in class. And if I got in trouble, I would just cheat right? I know none of you have ever done this. And so I'd get answers from my friends when I needed them. You know, there's a little quid pro quo there, like if I got an answer from 
Bob, you know, I kind of him have an answer of mine later when he needed it. And it finally occurred to me that even though I didn't get caught, even though my teacher never knew, I knew I was cheating. And more importantly, God knew I was cheating. And so I made up my mind right there to stop. And I didn't anticipate how hard that was going to be. You know, my grades kind of suffered for a while because I had to catch up, work a little hard to catch up on stuff that I missed. And I took a major dip in popularity. All of a sudden, Dan wasn't sharing the answers. Uh, People were real upset with me. It was very uncomfortable. And I never uh, posted on Facebook. I never stood up in class and said, I've decided to stop cheating because God has convicted me and I'm... I didn't do that, all right? I kind of didn't need to do that because people already knew that I was a Christian. Um, But it wasn't about them. Maybe they looked at me from that point forward as a Christ stain. I'm not sure. But it wasn't about them. It was about me and God. We needed to, uh, we all need to be resolved to do good, to do the right thing. And in doing that, we trust ourselves to a faithful creator who will ultimately take care of us. Biblical scholar Scott McKnight comments, whether the IRS knows or not is not the issue. God knows. Whether the boss knows or not is not the issue. God knows. Whether your family knows or not is not the issue. God knows. Because God knows everything. We have to learn to submit everything in our lives to his final assessment. So again, the grace in all of this is that when God convicts us of wrong in our life, we ask forgiveness. We repent. That's it. It's over. We happily choose life and go a different way. And that might be hard at first, but in hindsight, it's an easy choice. And so however popular or unpopular that may make us at home, at work, at school, wherever, it doesn't matter. We're entrusting ourselves to our faithful creator. We will continue doing good. We will continue being a Christ stain, if that's how people see it. And by living to impress God, we'll definitely make an impression on others. And so something that the the book of 1 Peter teaches over and over and over again is that when you decide to live for Jesus, you're no longer living for yourself. You're not living to impress the others in your life. You're living for God. And whatever suffering or discomfort we may experience, it pales in comparison to the life that we find in Jesus. Amen? Please join me in prayer. Lord, help us. Uh, Sometimes we do weary in doing good choosing the right thing. Help us to endure. Give us strength. Help us to entrust ourselves to you. And uh, whether it's the temptations that we're aware of or not aware of that we need to resist, help, help us to, to do that. Um, whether it's people in our life, Lord, that... I, I, I mean, I have no doubt 
that in a room this size that there's, there's people who this rings true. Being a Christian is not a popular choice at home or, or in their family circles or wherever. And it's really tough. Don't let them despair, Lord. Give them strength. Help them to realize they're making the right decision. Ultimately, your opinion is the only one that matters. And for the rest of us who may or may not experience real suffering in our life, help us to remember there are others going through fiery ordeals too. We pray for them. We lift them up to you, Lord. We pray this in all of your name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we were going to have a closing song, but in light of a Mariners game and a Boeing Golf Classic, please rise for the benediction this morning. <laughs> Go in God's grace, God's peace, and God's confidence as you continue doing good and entrusting yourselves to him this week. Amen? God bless you. See you next Sunday.